So the question that we've been asking the last few weeks is, what does it look like to be the church today, at this time, in this place? What does it look like to be God's people? Right? At a time whenever it's not popular to be church, right? Uh, Our world is is constantly anxious and, and depressed and exhausted and at the brink of burnout. What does it look like to be God's people in the midst of all of this? Well, the image we've been exploring is that it looks like being a table in the wilderness. It looks like being a table in the wilderness. You see, we've seen how sometimes we find ourselves forced out into the wilderness because of desperate circumstances. Uh, When suddenly we find ourselves in the middle of nowhere going, what am I doing here? And yet even in a place like that, we can encounter the abundant goodness of God's table. Uh, Other times, uh, we have seen, uh, as we've looked at the life and ministry of John the Baptist, how God calls us out into the wilderness, calls us into this place uh, to be a different kind of people who are not shaped and formed by the ways of the world, but, but to look different, to be a different kind of people. We've seen how in the wilderness, we come in touch with the elements, right? We can hear in John's preaching uh, the element of fire, or we can see in baptism, the element of water. These things that refine us and form us and, and draw us in to God's story. And throughout all of this, we have seen how the wilderness is, is not something that we seek to escape. Uh, it's not something that we need to run away from, but rather it, it's a place that we can embrace as a place of transformation. Uh, where we are formed and shaped into the people of God. So here's a question that remains for us. How do we become a table in the wilderness? Right? We find ourselves in the midst of the wilderness. We find ourselves called even into the wilderness and shaped and formed by it. But how are we to become a table in the wilderness? How do we become a place of life and belonging and abundance and trust that we talked about on that first week? Well, so far, John has come as a voice preparing the way in the wilderness. But Jesus is the one who shows us what it is to be a table in the wilderness. And so it's to Jesus that we turn. We've already read uh, from Matthew 3, but I'm going to read just another piece of it once more. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. If you want to turn there, you can, or you can look on the dwelling sheet. Uh, It's printed there as well. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus replied, Let it be so now, 
It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the Word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Word. And we thank you for Jesus, who shows us what it is to be a table in the midst of the wilderness. I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to ask you several questions this morning and ponder together a few things. These are not easy questions to ponder, but I think they're vital questions to consider if we're to become a table in the wilderness. The first question is this, who are you? Who are you? You, you, Your first thought might just be to simply think of your name, right? Well, you know, I'm Drew. I'm Bill. You know, whatever. But, But let's go a little deeper than that. Let's get more specific. Who are you? Well, the next layer, you know, maybe you start to think about some role that you play, right? Some relationship that you have, your job title, uh, you know, you're, you work here, you do this, you're a, a mom, a sister, a brother, a uh, student, whatever, right? But again, let's go deeper than that. Who are you? Really? Who are you? There are several layers to who we are, right? On the outer layer, there's what we might call our reputation, right? What people think of us, what people see when they look at us. And if we're honest, we expend a lot of energy managing our reputation, don't we? We spend a lot of time paying a lot of attention to how other people see us and how we would like other people to see us. We want people to see us a certain way. We want people to think about us a certain way, right? Much of what we do in life is to get people to think or feel a certain way about us, right? We want to to be seen as happy, so we smile. We want to be seen as caring, So we ask, hey, how are you doing? We don't want to be seen as as unkind or impatient, so we justify the outbursts we do have 
by blaming our circumstances or something else. We do a whole lot of work managing our reputation, what other people think about us. But we got to go deeper still, right? Under that layer of reputation, there's, there's our character, right? What is actually going on? inside of us. You know, perhaps we want to be seen as happy or smiling, but really there's, there's some grief. There's some anxiety. There's some fear. But we don't want to be seen that way, right? But, but what's going on deep down? Perhaps we want to be seen as caring, so we say, oh, how are you? And then our, our mind and brain and ears just shut off immediately after asking that question because we've, we've put our part forward, right? And, and now we just want out of the conversation as quickly as possible, right? We look caring, but what's actually going on, right? right? We, we don't want to be seen as unkind or impatient, so, you know, we defend ourselves, we blame other things, but maybe there's a part of us that actually isn't very kind. Maybe there's actually a part of ourselves that is just impatient. We need to face that, pay attention to that. We do so much to manage our reputations, to stay in control at the expense of actually working on our character that deeper part of us that's not in control, but is always reacting and responding to things around us. And I think we would do very well to spend more time on our character and let reputation take care of itself. But look, I, I want to move even deeper still. Even deeper still, who are you? Really? Before your character is reacting and responding to things, before you have a chance to, to manage your reputation and how people see you, before you had that job title or relationship or role, who are you? Psychologists have identified that when we are first born into the world, we do not yet realize that we exist. We don't know that. We don't, we don't come into the world knowing about our existence. Little babies have not yet differentiated themselves from their caregiver. It's why they need to be right there all the time, right? But slowly, somewhere along the way, babies begin to make the profound discovery that they exist, right? All of a sudden, it's what are these, right? And they, they see their hands and they start moving them and chewing on them, right? Uh, suddenly they, they look down and they see these feet and they start kicking them and they reach out, they grab them, right? They, they realize, I exist. Like, I, I am a person. Wow, right? And, and, and this happens over the course of, of, of growing up. But in addition to discovering, you know, their bodies, as we grow up, we also are discovering ourselves. 
We're discovering who we are. And this is chiefly learned by how others react and respond around us. Right? Is a child worthy of love and attention? Or do they have to fight for it? That's something that is learned in the first few months of life. Do other people look upon you with a joyful smile or with a frustrated sigh? That's something within just the first few months a person begins to sense about themselves. From infancy on to right now, however old you are, we have internalized all kinds of messages and scripts from the people around us about who we are. We've internalized all kinds of things. What are your messages and scripts that you believe about yourself? What have you come to believe about who you are? Some of these come from our families growing up. Some of them come from our our friends and peers that we had in school. Some of them come from our teachers and then later from our employers. Many of them come from the constant influx of of ads. Just wait for the Super Bowl commercials, right? They're going to be telling you exactly who you are, right? Ads, which is just amplified all the more by social media. Who are you? Right? A lot of these messages have come from church from preachers and religious people telling you things about who you are. What messages have you received and come to believe about who you are? Who are you? That's the first question to ponder this morning. Here's the second, second question. Who is God? That's a pretty simple one, right? Who is God? What is God like? The preacher and spiritual writer A.W. Tozer began his very small but very dense book called Knowledge of the Holy with this statement. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So that's the question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Perhaps it's some of those big philosophical words we often hear. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, right? God is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, all at once. Maybe you think of other adjectives, you know, like holy or righteous, or maybe mysterious. 
Maybe there's an image that comes into your mind, like a fluffy cloud or an old man with a fluffy beard, right? That's when I was a kid, that was like the primary picture that I had, right? If I was a kid, draw a picture of God, big fluffy beard, right? I, I don't know where that came from. What comes to mind when you think about God? What is God like? And then I wonder, where do those ideas come from? Right? Where, where do those words, that image that comes to your mind when you think about God, where, where does that come from? Is it something you were told? Something you read? Something you kind of intuited at some point along the way? I don't know. No one ever told me God had a fluffy beard. I don't know where that came from. But as a kid, that's what I would have drawn. I actually did draw that picture as a kid. During church, I remember it. It's important to reflect on where these things come from so we know what kinds of voices are shaping and forming us. Because what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What is shaping that most important thing for you? Who is God? So these are our first couple questions. Who are you, right? What messages, what scripts do you believe about yourself? Uh, Question number two, who is God, right? Uh, What comes to mind for you when you think about God? So I have a third question, important question, which brings these two together. I want you to imagine for a moment that God is thinking about you. What comes into God's mind when he thinks about you? What do you think God feels when he thinks about you? What does God feel when he thinks about you? You might say, I don't know. Who knows, right? But but pause and, and really reflect on this for a moment. What do you think God feels when he thinks about you? The psychologist and spiritual director David Binner asks people that he meets with this question often. Uh, And he writes that a surprising number of people say that the very first thing they assume God feels is disappointment. When God thinks about me, I feel like God's disappointed. Maybe that's what came to your mind. He goes on to say, there are others who assume that God feels angry. And then he says, the consequences of such a view of God are enormous that's what you think God feels when he thinks about you, that's going to shape a lot 
about how you live and who you are. Another author, Brennan Manning, writes that we unwittingly project onto God our attitudes and feelings that we have toward ourselves. We project those onto God. He references Blaise Pascal, who wrote, God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. Let's make God in our image. Goes on to say, if we feel hateful toward ourselves, we assume that God feels hateful toward us. Fill in the blank, whatever it might be. The way that you feel toward yourself, we, we often project that onto what we think God feels and thinks about us. But he writes, we cannot assume that God feels about us the way that we feel about ourselves. And so what do you assume that God feels when God thinks about you? This is another vital question that we have to face. So these are the three questions that that we're pondering. Who do you think you are? Who do you think God is? And who do you think God thinks you are? We could spend a lifetime pondering any one of these questions. And we would do well to. But I have one more question for us that is going to bring us back to the text we've just read. That question is this. Why was Jesus baptized? Why, why did this happen? Right? He goes to John. He asks to be baptized. He insists on it. Why? Jesus was baptized to show us the answer to the questions that we've been pondering so far. Who are you? Who is God? And who does God say that you are? Well, look back at verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. At Jesus' baptism, heaven opens up. And we get, at least for a moment, a clear view of exactly who God is and what God feels. I love moments like this in Scripture where we can clearly witness and see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit interacting with one another. We see the full revelation of who God is in this moment. And at the very heart of it, we see love and delight. This is my son whom I love. And with him I am well pleased. 
this is the voice of God. Now, what's especially noteworthy about this story, this declaration that comes, is what has come before it, or rather, what has not come before it. Right? So far in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has done basically nothing. Right? Nothing at all. He was born. We know that. He grew up living an ordinary, obscure life. No one knew who this guy was. He hasn't performed any miracles. Jesus hasn't preached any sermons. He hasn't accomplished any great spiritual feats like fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. None of those things will happen until chapter 4. And yet here, in Matthew chapter 3, the Father speaks, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. This shows us something absolutely foundational to the life of Jesus and to life with God. It shows us that Jesus did not fast and pray or do miracles or preach in order to be loved by God. But he did those things because he was loved by God. Do you see the difference? Can can you see the difference? This makes all the difference. This is the essence of Christian living. We do not do things in order to be loved by God, but rather because we are loved by God. As it says in 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. It's not the other way around. We love because he first loved us. It's not the other way around. These are two fundamentally different ways of living and being in the world, right? Living for love versus living from love. Foundationally different ways of existing. Living in order to be loved. Or living because we know we are loved. And there are many different ways this has been articulated. Uh, The author I mentioned earlier, Brennan Manning, calls them living as the imposter versus living as the beloved. The imposter lives in order to be loved and liked, right? It's that impression management, that reputation control that we talked about. But the beloved lives knowing they are already deeply loved no matter what. 
There are other writers like Henry Nouwen or Thomas Merton who call these two ways of living, living from the true self or living from the false self. Any time that we live in order to get love, or at least live in order to avoid hate, we're living from the false self. That self that we've artificially constructed in order to manage and control our lives. But when we, like Jesus, begin by hearing the voice of God, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased, and we live from that place, well, then we're living from the true self, the self that God calls us, the self who God has created us to be. Two fundamentally different ways of living and being and existing in the world. I want you to think about how radically different these two ways are. Right? If life is lived in order to be loved, then everything is a competition. And everything we do is under evaluation. Right? How many good deeds did you do? How much money do you make? How many likes or comments or followers did you get on social media? How impressive is your life? Do you measure up? This is what it is to live in order to be loved. And when this is how we live, it also changes the way that we approach other people, right? Because we either approach other people in order to get love from them, or we approach other people and constantly evaluate them as to whether or not they're worthy of getting love from us. Now, if we're honest, this is a pretty accurate description of the world we live in. It's even an accurate description of many of the churches we've been in. Just a religious version of it. We live in a world that is fascinated with the false self. We live in a world that only knows how to live in order to be loved. And so we live with this constant pressure and we put that pressure on others as well. But consider the alternative. I've asked you this question before, and I want to ask it again. How would you live differently if you sincerely believed that the truest thing about you is that you are deeply loved by God? How would you live differently if you sincerely believed that the truest thing about who you are is that you are loved deeply by God. What would change in your heart? What would change in your life? 
what would you finally be able to let go of? What would you finally be able to hold on to? How would you live differently if you sincerely believed that the truest thing about who you are is that you are deeply beloved of God? That would change a lot. And now imagine... What would happen if a whole community of people lived together like that? No need to impress each other because everyone's already utterly delighted in one another. There's no reason to perform. You're loved. Right? There's no need to fight for your place because you belong. You already belong. You're you're loved. What would happen if a whole community of people truly believed in their belovedness? The book of Acts puts it this way. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. No need to impress each other. No need to keep tally or tab. You need something? I'm here for you. It's a community marked by belovedness. What would that community look like? It would look like a table in the wilderness. And what does a community like this do? A community like this doesn't hoard up their love. They share it. And proclaim it to others. This is, after all, what Jesus did. Right? In the waters of baptism, he heard the voice of the Father speak, You are my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And that became central to his message that he would preach and proclaim to all of his followers. Just a couple chapters later, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to people, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in their barns. And yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they Jesus says, you're loved by the Father. 
He goes on, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus heard the message of belovedness. And he didn't store that up, hold that up for himself, going around telling everyone, hey, I'm the beloved, I'm amazing. He goes on and lives from that place and says, you are beloved children of God. He passes that belovedness on to others. The Spirit descended on Jesus and, and declared to him that he was the beloved Son of God. And in the very same way, Paul writes that God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. This Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Jesus shares his inheritance with us. He shares his belovedness with us. And when we live in this belovedness, then we will also share that with others. That's what a community living in the love of God, will do. So how do we enter into that? We've been learning much from the desert mothers and fathers, and there are a lot of stories about them wandering out into the wilderness in pursuit of God and the love of God. But it's not all easy. It's not all an easy walk, piece of cake. There's a story of Abba Anthony, one of the very first of the desert fathers. There are many stories of Abba Anthony wrestling in the desert, wrestling with demons and evil spirits. There's one story that says that that a number of others walked up and, and to near the, the, the desert solitary cell where Anthony lived and heard in the night the sounds of, of like a fight occurring, right? No idea what's going on in there. But Anthony wrestled in the wilderness. You see, the wilderness is valuable because it's a place where we have to wrestle with that false self that we've built up. And it is a fight because we've done a lot of work building up that false self. For many, many years, decades even, we've lived from a place assuming that we have to do a certain thing in order to be loved. And the wilderness is the place that strips us of that. And we actually come face to face with who we really are in 
and of ourselves. But the good news of Jesus is that what we'll find there is the deep love of the Father. And that's not something that I can manipulate into your being. It's my job here to proclaim the gospel every week. It's my job here to open the scriptures and say, hey, here's what we see. But I, I can't make you feel the love of God. That's something that only God can speak into your heart. And so all I can do is, is beg you, listen for that voice that calls you beloved. Go to a quiet place. Set down those false things that you've built up around yourself and let God speak his love to you. I can't make that happen, but I can pray for you and with you. We can pray for one another to know this truth, to know this love that's beyond knowing. This is what it is to be God's people, to be utterly convinced that God radically loves us. And everything we do from now on is because of that truth. So my prayer is that we would be a people who hear the voice of God in the wilderness. You are my beloved child. In you I am well pleased. As we close, I want to read a blessing to you uh, from a book I've read from before here by a poet named Jan Richardson. This is a blessing that she has written entitled, Beloved is Where We Begin. She writes, If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing who you are. Beloved, named by the one who has traveled this path before you. Do not go without letting it echo into your ears. And if you find it is hard to let it into your heart, do not despair. That is what this journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger from fear, from hunger, or thirst, from the scorching of sun, or the fall of the night. But I can tell you that on this path, there will be help. I can tell you that on this way, there will be rest. 
I can tell you that you will know the strange graces that come to our aid only on a road such as this, that fly to meet us bearing comfort and strength, that come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves toward our ear and with their curious insistence whisper our name. Beloved, beloved, beloved. Amen.